everyone, my name is Allison Chan, and welcome to the first episode of my podcast, Bridging Synopsis. I'll first quickly introduce myself and give a little overview on why I started this podcast, and then we'll jump right into the interview itself. So I'm a rising sophomore at Harvard University, concentrating in neuroscience with a secondary in either sociology or global health and health policy, all on the pre-med track. And as for why I started this podcast, I've always listened to them here and there, but during the gap year that I took right after high school, I started to make it more of a daily habit, and now podcasts are one of my favorite forms of media to consume. I love listening to them honestly anywhere and at any time, so I could be walking somewhere to meet up with someone, or I could be in lab imaging brain slices, and I'll probably have some sort of podcast going on. And during my gap year, I had the idea of starting one of my own, but I ended up just putting it off because I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted it to be about. So I'm very excited to finally be starting a podcast. I also just wanted to briefly explain the name Bridging Synapses. So evidently with the synapses part, neuroscience will be a main theme, and I hope to interview people in the field, such as Dr. Emily Ferenzi, who I interviewed for this first episode, just about their pathway to neuroscience and the insight that they've gained over the years. And the bridging part of bridging synapses relates to how I personally have a myriad of interests, ranging from neuroscience to philosophy, to journalism, and how I've been able to pursue all these interests, both in college and just in my day-to-day life. So in addition to interviews, I hope to do more casual, sit-down, solo-type episodes, as well as ones with friends who might not have exactly the same interests or exactly the same experiences as I do just to sort of bridge those synapses and bridge those gaps. Another aspect is how life is, of course, a never-ending journey to personal fulfillment. So I hope to reflect on how I've crossed certain bridges, such as the transition from high school to college, or figuring out what I want to do and study, which in many ways I'm still figuring out what to do with my life, (laughs) and hopefully invite some friends to talk about how we've all grown and what those transitions have been like for them. So that was a lot, but I'm very excited for this podcast and what it holds. And now onto my first interview with my postdoc mentor, Emily Ferenzi. I'm here with Emily Ferenzi, um, who is currently a movement disorder specialist at Mass General Hospital here in Boston and Brigham and Women's Hospital as well. And she's also a postdoc at the Sabatini Lab at Harvard Medical School. Um, So I guess I just wanted to give you some time to maybe introduce yourself and kind of talk about how you came here. 
Yeah, great. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. It's really exciting. Um, so I am from England originally. I was born in London. And I went to medical school in England, where it's an undergraduate degree. So after high school, I went straight to medical school, uh, which started in, at Cambridge University, where we did three years of kind of the basic science parts, our preclinical training, and then did three years of clinical training at Oxford University. And um, it was really by, by the end of that time that I knew that I was interested in research, um, but I, I, I kind of did my early doctor training in England as I was kind of trying to decide what type of research to do. Um, and then kind of once it all solidified a bit more in my mind, I came to the US to do my PhD. And uh, after that, I realized I, I still wanted to be a doctor and continue my clinical training. So I completed that um, in, uh, as neurology residency and fellowship at Mesh General and Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston. And that brings me to now. <laughs> yeah. And I am actually a summer intern um, working with Emily, and today's actually our last day together, which is sad. Very sad. Um, but I guess throughout the summer, I've heard a lot about her experiences as like an MD PhD. Um, so I was just wondering if you could talk more about that and how you really knew you wanted to do both and not just one, because um, I feel like that's also something I'm thinking about. Um, as I'm interested in the MD-PhD route, but then also maybe just the MD route, so kind of thinking about the two. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and I would say it's been this kind of fluctuating course uh, that I've been on since high school, really. Um, it's a little bit different, obviously, in England because you do have to decide on medical school so early, mm -hmm. um, and that was something in, in my teens, I kind of had this sense that I liked the idea of of medical school uh, I think I probably saw a movie about medical school at one point and that's what inspired me but but I, I kind of got attached to this idea of um, being able to uh, heal people and um, talk to them and think about think through their medical issues and so I was very set on medicine early on and it was really during medical school when I did some research projects as, uh, in the, the first three years, the kind of undergrad years, uh, where I started to really uh, enjoy doing science. Uh, with one particular year um, when I was doing my physiology course, and we specialized in, we did some specialty stuff in neurophysiology and um, motor control and sensory control. And I was doing uh, recordings of neuron activity in frogs mm -hmm. and um, I remember this like, one moment where I was thinking nobody has ever like learned this or heard this done this experiment before in the whole world and I was like this is the most amazing <laughs> thing I'm like the first person to do this experiment um, and, it, and I think that was kind of where I suddenly yeah. fell in love with the idea of doing science and particularly started getting into uh, neuroscience I mean at that time it was I was doing recordings in frog muscle so mm. I wasn't doing brain stuff but it it kind of made me excited about the idea of excitable cells mm. and eventually I, I started thinking about neurons mm -hmm. and the brain um, and so so then that was kind of this theme that has followed me 
over the years and I've had kind of waves where I've kind of become more clinical and then ways where I've become way more research like during my PhD I didn't do any clinical research again and you know at that time I mean sorry I didn't do any other clinical work during my PhD mm. and at that time I remember thinking well should I you know go back and finish my neurology training uh, which I had already I'd planned on it but I, I suddenly thought well should I and I remember talking with a close friend at that time and, and they kind of made me think about it in more detail by saying well when they they think about if they had to choose one it was going to be medicine or science which is the one that they would absolutely choose and I kind of thought about that a lot more and I and I didn't really know at the time but uh over several months I started to think I think I would I would always choose medicine if I had to choose one mm. because it's the one that really makes me feel that my job has um, like a real meaningful impact on people's day-to-day -day lives. Um, I would really miss the science if I didn't do it, um, but I, I think for me medicine is the driving force, and then doing science on top of that has just mm -hmm. been this incredible sort of luxury, <laughs> um, uh, and also it's a really nice counterbalance to the mm -hmm. clinical work. So the combination is and just this huge privilege. Um, and it's not easy by any means, but I feel like they, they complement each other um, mm -hmm. really well. Mm -hmm. And now you spend two days in the clinic and then three days in lab usually. Oh. Yeah, it's supposed to be mm -hmm. one day really, but mm -hmm. some weeks it's two days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then sometimes it kind of mm -hmm. merges even more. But um, ideally, yeah, it's supposed to be kind of one to two days of clinic. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, it's really hard to spend any less time in lab than I already do. Yeah. I mm -hmm. feel like already I don't spend enough time in lab. So. Mm -hmm. And I find it very interesting how you started this whole medical journey in um, England and then came here. Is there any reason why you didn't continue back in England? Yeah, um, oh, that's a great question. And kind of, it's like the funny paths that life yeah. takes. Um, yeah, so I originally, when I came to the States, I fully intended to come back to the UK. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I still haven't ruled that out, um, but it, I was very specifically just going to come for my PhD because there was one specific lab that I got really interested in at Stanford and, and wanted to join it. And then I was going to come back and do my, my clinical training. And then the PhD, as, as perhaps predicted, predictable in the U.S., took longer than I thought it was mm -hmm. going to take. So a typical PhD in England is three years. Um, and so that was how much time that my clinical training program in England had given me to go off to the States mm. and do my PhD. And they were willing to extend it for one year, like maybe it would be a four, then a four year PhD, but I wasn't done in four years, it was gonna take at least five to mm. do my PhD. And so in England, they were like, well, you're gonna have to like quit your clinical program here and reapply, which was not terrible, but it also made me sort of think mm. again about, well, maybe I could apply for residency in the US instead. Mm. And then that kind of coincided with the same time that I met my uh, then boyfriend, who is now my husband, <laughs> and we were trying to decide where in the world we wanted to live and mm -hmm. be together. And we kind of decided that 
we would keep more options open by mm-hmm. having me do my clinical training mm-hmm. in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, the problem is in the U.S. if you haven't done residency here, mm-hmm. um, you can't really practice as mm-hmm. a kind of independent clinician. Eventually, you always have to do residency in order to get a license to practice independently in the oh, U.S. Okay. So I didn't want to go back to England and then come back, you know, in five or ten years time and have to redo residency. Yeah. So that was, so that's kind of what kept us here. <laughs> time in lab and then your time in clinic. I was wondering if you could talk more about what you kind of really enjoy about each part. Um, and then also, I guess, maybe areas that you really wish you had more of especially since you have to split your time um, yeah. in these two places. Yeah, there's um, never enough time for any of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so I'll start with the clinical part. So um, the clinical part is uh, kind of at the same time can be a little stressful, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also just so incredibly rewarding, and I always come away from clinic kind of feeling sort of buoyed up and excited and I think it's just that again like a sort of privilege of getting this little window into people's lives like they come into your clinic and maybe you've never met them before and they tell you their whole life history mm-hmm. and what they're struggling with and what they kind of need your help with and then you sort of get this chance to be able to kind of at, at least help under, them understand what's going on Hopefully, you can provide a diagnosis in, in movement disorders that can often take time. And, mm. you know, the diseases are complex, and sometimes we don't even know what's going on, but that kind of detective puzzle of trying to figure it out. And, uh, and then, you know, being able to give patients answers um, can be very therapeutic in mm. of its own. Often, I have patients who have come and they've been struggling with symptoms for several years and mm. they haven't they just don't know why it's happening and there's so much uncertainty about what's going to happen in the future and even if you can't promise them that you can cure them or fix it just being able to tell them what is going on and mm. what they might expect gives them and their family um quite a lot of comfort um and you know then there hopefully there are some things you can do to help mm-hmm. and we have a lot of treatments for different movement disorders and being able to then prescribe things or think about other kinds of treatments like deep brain stimulation mm-hmm. and, um, you know provide for actual therapeutic benefit it's mm-hmm. great and then and then the other part is that I really like about the outpatient kind of side of medicine which I didn't do so much of in residency residency mm-hmm. very kind of inpatient heavy very kind of intense acute things on the outpatient side you get to form these very kind of long-term relationships with patients over years um, and kind of become like almost like, you know, I feel like they're almost kind of extended family members sometimes. Mm. And, you know, you end up talking to patients over the phone. Sometimes, you know, if I'm on vacation and they're having some kind of crisis, you know, we'll talk on the phone. Mm. And, and so you kind of you kind of really become interweaved in their lives and they kind of become interweaved in your life. Um, and that's the other part that I really... But I get a lot from my patients, and I sometimes feel kind of selfish thinking about that. But you know, you see people at their most vulnerable and at some of the most challenging periods of their time, and learning how they cope with that mm-hmm. and deal with things, and how their families deal with it. It's actually really—I um, feel like I try and take away some lessons there. And so when I'm having sort of 
personal life crises mm. or struggles I feel like I have to like remember how did that person deal with it mm. oh I remember mm. and try and incorporate some of that into my wow. own mm. strategies um so yeah the overall I think it's an incredibly rewarding fulfilling job um uh, you know like like any job there's definitely downsides and the clinic it is stressful you know you have to kind of a time limit to these interactions mm-hmm. it's not just like meeting with friends and talking for as long as they need or you need yeah. um you know the, the clinic appointments are a certain duration of time and you have to try to finish up and I often run late mm-hmm. and so then I kind of get stressed about that there's an awful lot of documentation kind of a, a lot of people you know studying this kind of say this amount of clicking that we have to do is contributing Mm -hmm. to doctor burnout and Mm -hmm. you know it it does it does mount up and I could see if you were doing clinic sessions every day you know the clinic writing up the notes afterwards you end up having to do in your spare time and that just can really um, be draining after Mm -hmm. some time so so that can be that can be stressful how long sorry how long does a write-up usually take usually takes me equal amount of time as seeing the patient so mm. if I have a one hour clinic appointment with a patient it will take me at least one hour oh. afterwards to mm. like write my note formulate my thought a lot of it is actually thinking mm-hmm. trying to figure out you know, what's going on reading through previous mm. notes looking at test results and scans and then doing the paperwork that like it's the follow-ups or writing the prescriptions or sending referrals that mm-hmm. kind of thing mm-hmm. it's at least it's at least an equal amount of time God. with mm-hmm. and without the patient mm-hmm. so whenever I kind of think about how long my clinic sessions are like the amount of time is double at least mm-hmm. and so yeah so then so then after all of that and you know the adrenaline of the patient encounters and kind of getting things done um the lab is just very different and sometimes kind of a relief to come Mm. to lab after that so my clinic day is monday and then when i get to lab i kind of have this big feeling of relief where i can just sit down at my desk and plan my day and have control over my day and not have this kind of steady drumbeat of things Mm. that have to get done and people that have to be seen Uh, i kind of just take a deep breath um and then you know kind of get sort of deep into the into the research um and and so what I you know what I love about lab is kind of going back to the very beginning is thinking about finding things that people haven't found before Mm -hmm. like what what is the next kind of most exciting experiment I can think of that we can move our knowledge in new directions I love the interactions in lab just the kind of casual conversations that you have with people about science um and I really like the techniques. Uh, you know, during my PhD, so I've spent a lot of time learning how to do um, you know, surgeries and, and brain you know, handling brain tissue. And I was doing some imaging studies. So learning you know, new, like actual manual techniques, mm. and then also the data analysis. I'd say that's my weakest point. Um, mm. I, because medical school is an undergraduate degree in England, I did very little in the way of math or computer science mm-hmm. in college in fact none who mm-hmm. just did medicine um and so i feel like I've, for my phd onwards i'm still like playing catch up on trying mm-hmm. to learn how to code and analyze things um, but i also find that really fun and also that's a kind of other great thing about science is that you're you're never done learning yeah. stuff. there's like always new things mm-hmm. to learn and um, figure out how to do mm-hmm. 
I also realized in lab that there's always someone who's going to be better at doing things than you are, <laughs> which is good and bad. It's sort of humbling in many ways, which is it's good. But I, I think, you know, the collaboration and science, like finding people who are really good at things and trying to work with them, if that's your weak point, is kind of a good way to to get science done. And um, you know, I, at the moment, I'm in the middle of sort of writing grants and thinking about new ideas mm-hmm. and um, we're planning new experiments. We've had a really exciting few months where we just got some new data that was totally unexpected and mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of taken us in this whole new direction. So mm-hmm. I've been really enjoying yeah. kind of building that up. Yeah, definitely. And I think the collaboration is such a huge aspect because I walking in like on the first day I didn't expect it to be so collaborative even in the office right a lot of times it's very loud and people are just yeah. talking about their research yeah and, like people listening or asking questions um even in the weekly lab meetings we have them um every week and each like postdoc takes turns just updating everyone on their research um I always find it so nice like, yeah. hearing so many questions being asked yeah um but yeah I think that's I don't know if it's the case for every lab. I noticed that a lot in this yeah. lab. I think this lab is a particularly... I mean, I do think... I mean, my PhD lab is also extremely mm. collaborative. I don't think it's like a given. I think it has to be a culture that gets yes. cultivated. Um, but I think in neuroscience, it's kind of essential. Mm. And so I think more and more labs are becoming mm. more like that. Just because there are so many techniques... And no one person can be expert at all of them. Exactly. And, so you, and, and most neuroscience labs are starting to incorporate many mm-hmm. different types of techniques. So you're going to have to be able to share knowledge and share skills. Um, but it, yeah, it does make it super fun. Yeah. Um, and you know, just getting kind of new perspectives on what's interesting or what's sort of, yeah. And it's, does this experiment actually prove what we think it's proving? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Um, it's, it's so cool. Yeah, I think another aspect is how the labs have to be in person because I think other more computational focused ones they could be remote. Yes. But just yeah. having that in person aspect. And is I so think nice. that was kind of this experiment that we kind of got forced to play during mm-hmm. the pandemic, where the lab got shut down yes. for three months, and so none of us could come in. And we tried to do, um, you know, we had some. We ended up doing like kind of group teaching sessions mm. where several of us like, took a topic and like took, we had to like make up a series of lectures to teach oh. each other on stuff so Ali and I did like, one about like basal gang like history of the basal gang yeah. and Rich did one on like I think it was on optics mm. and things like that so we we kind of tried to have interactions like just on, sort of teaching each other things um, but I think it became super apparent that the lab just doesn't work as well if people are not having these informal meetings and so you can have enough zooms but zooms yeah. just like not conducive for like those quick questions that you want to ask someone yes. about the microscope mm. or about what like tighter of virus they were using for some experiment um you kind of have to have these like brownian motion type uh, interactions mm-hmm. that just sort of happen spontaneously and um and i think yeah i remember bernardo saying that 
he ended up finding that people kept coming to him with the same questions or struggling with the same problem whereas before like people would discuss it amongst themselves yeah. and then figure it out whereas he was like everyone was kind of like funneling through Bernardo <laughs> um, and I, th- I think he found it like, very clear that it, the lab just wasn't working as well yeah um, so I mean, we ended up all being able to come back in the summer of 2020 and mm-hmm. it's pretty you know, soon yeah now I think we're pretty much back to full in-person yeah. mode mm-hmm. And how did the pandemic affect your time in the clinic? Because I mentioned these people might have these conditions for like so long and finally you get to see them. Yeah, it was such a a crazy time. So I was still in my fellowship then. Um, And for a few weeks, like everything just completely stopped. Like Mm -hmm. we had no, and actually we were all getting told that we had to be ready to go in and help for like in the ICU and do like all the inpatient COVID stuff, which I did a tiny, tiny little bit of. I I didn't end up having to go in too much, thankfully. Um, But um, so everything was kind of went on like hold completely. Mm -hmm. But amazingly, you know, so so telemedicine was just not, Mm -hmm. people were sort of starting it. It was like really kind of gently, people were kind of getting, interested in ramping it up in the hospital but it was not a big thing mm-hmm. and then within about two or three weeks the entire hospital system had like converted to doing like virtual medicine um, oh, wow. and and suddenly we were able to do clinic visits over zoom mm-hmm. and now it's and we've of course had all of our clinical conferences and stuff over zoom mm-hmm. and now i would say um, like unlike the lab, the hospital is this is now a permanent feature of clinical care is mm. the, the ability to do virtual clinics. So I now have about one a month. I have mm. a virtual clinic where oh. all my patients are get seen over Zoom, mm. and um, it's really nice. I think you know in movement disorders. It's, it doesn't work on its own. You can't only do virtual visits because mm-hmm. the exam, like yeah. the physical exam, is so important for you know, Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to feel stiffness, and, and, it, and the video never, the quality is never good enough really for mm-hmm. doing a final diagnosis for a new patient. But if it's someone that you've known for ages mm-hmm. and you just like want to check in and see how they're doing yeah. with their meds, make a small few, few adjustments, it's perfect and many patients love it because mm. they're traveling from really far mm. you know mm. like western mass um, and now they can just kind of hop online yeah. and, and get seen and um yeah um so we we do it we do it quite a lot and uh, i like it because i get to see people's homes you know <laughs> and it, it's important you know especially with parkinson's where people have a high risk of falling you want to be able to see well mm. you know does this home they've, they've got like really like, tiny corridors and you see them as they're trying to navigate around their home yeah. and they're like tripping over stuff in the hallway you, you get a sense of well this is kind of a risky situation mm-hmm. versus oh you know they've got it all laid out mm-hmm. with grab rails and everything looks good you know you yeah. just get this like extra kind of clinical insight into what their wow. home setup is and it's easier for you to kind of meet family members too that mm-hmm. way which is another thing I found interesting I sometimes like it when there are grandkids who like pop up on the yeah. screen and <laughs> <laughs> you know, or pets I've seen I've had a few a really few good few visits where people's cats are kind of lying, lying on the keyboard or something <laughs> so I guess some positives came out definitely yeah actually huge po- positives mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. for people in elementary school or just kids in general yeah like how that might affect 
their social interactions I in know. the future if they just can't really read other people's I emotions know. with the masks. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, we wondered about it a lot. And my, I think my only kind of like, sort of personal relief is that I think that um, at least with kids, and you know, when you're with, when they're really young, mm-hmm. people say that it's your parents' face that makes the most important, sort of the most important for them to see mm-hmm. for social development. And so, as long as you know, they could see my, my kids could see my face, um, mm-hmm. and if children are seeing their own parents' faces at home, and hopefully that's enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think right that the whole middle school question, because middle school kids had most in school for a really long time. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I suppose, well, well, I hope people have been studying yeah. it longitudinally, I'm yeah. sure they have. There's been a few articles out, mm-hmm. I think, and I think it's a little bit mixed. I think some, some studies have shown that you know, there, there at least is some sort of emotional mm-hmm. development that requires faces, but mm-hmm. also I think kids are so adaptable, and yeah. their brains are so young and plastic mm-hmm. and malleable that I think... As long as, you know, now the masks are pretty mm-hmm. much off, I think probably their brains will yeah. adapt back pretty well. It, it's hope. probably hard to prove causation, too, rather than just Yeah, correlation. it's going to be a hard study because mm-hmm. so many things changed right? at the same time mm-hmm. during the pandemic. So mm-hmm. how do you control for all of those things? Yeah. But it's a really interesting question. drew you to neuroscience specifically um like what interests you most about the field um yeah that's a really great question so you know I think when I first got interested in neuroscience it was really the kind of um sort of building block physiology part I think a lot of people go into neuroscience because they're interested in the brain and how the brain works and the mind um I, I suppose I was really interested in the cells because um, mm-hmm. I kind of came at it from those frog experiments mm-hmm. and I was like, well, muscle's kind of cool because it, it does fire action potentials and things, but, but neurons are just like even more complex and interesting and they have, I, I suppose in Cambridge, my undergraduate degree was a lot, focused a lot on like ion channels mm-hmm. and synapses and kind of that very um, kind of basic of sort of fundamental neurophysiology um, and so I just thought that, that neurons were kind of the, the most interesting part of that and, and um, uh, so I thought that I would end up doing kind of physiology that was not so much circuits but more single cell physiology and ion channel physiology mm-hmm. um, but then as I started delving into other areas of research during my Near, like my junior doctor training in England, I worked for some time at the neuro, uh, national. It's called the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. It's just a big neurology hospital in London, and I suppose that was where I really fell in love with neurology mm. as a specialty, and just got so interested in neurologic diseases and how varied they are, and um, uh, and I spent some time there working with. Uh, in a lab that studied epilepsy mm. and they were starting to ask questions about the the circuits that can underlie epilepsy and drive seizure activity and how uh, and the graduate student that I was working with at that point was this really brilliant guy and he was the first person that made me realize that there's a way of thinking about the brain that's to do with how is the brain connected up 
in circuits. And it was just, a, to me at that time, a sort of new idea that I hadn't thought about. And the lab was just starting to delve into this very new technique. So when I joined that lab, I think it was a long time ago now, 2007, 2008. And a new technique had just come out of this lab at Stanford called optogenetics. And so we were reading, we were like scavenging through these papers about this really amazing new technique. It just first got published in 2005. So it's just sort of like a couple wow. of years in at that point. And it just sounded like the most incredible thing where you could control neural activity with light. And I was absolutely blown away by it. And we were trying to get it working in the lab and we were having a lot of trouble making the tools and we're trying to make the viruses. And it was, it was you know, it's one, I remember one postdoc was doing it and she, she was doing amazingly, but it just seemed like such a struggle. And I was like, I just want to go to that lab in the States and do it where they're doing it because they've got it working. And that was, I thought, actually, this is kind of neuroscience that I find absolutely astonishing. Yeah. And, and that kind of sort of rocket shipped me into mm. the world of circuit neuroscience and optogenetic tools. And, um, and kind of that's where I've stayed since then. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think in neuroscience is now I suppose I've sort of evolved to thinking about yeah how the questions about how different regions of the brain are connected, how they communicate with each other, how these communications are regulated, mm -hmm. um, and then it you know ultimately how that impacts disease and so movement disorders, which things like Parkinson's disease and tremor, uh, kind of a little unique in neurology because most neurological diseases you can pinpoint to a like a hole in the brain or a, like a, an area of the brain that got damaged mm -hmm. or an area of the spinal cord that got damaged whereas in you know in something that you can usually see on a scan like an MRI scan um, but in movement disorders often the scans are normal you don't see any any damage anywhere but clearly something's damaged mm -hmm. and so we, we think of it now that it, the, the circuit is damaged and it's um, the change in, in the firing patterns of neurons and, and neurons that are connected up in circuits that are causing all these symptoms so trying to understand mm -hmm. like how those circuits operate uh, how they can become dysfunctional in disease and then how you can correct them is kind of mm -hmm. where I hope um, I'm headed and I hope Last week, we were sort of talking about deep brain stimulation, and I thought that was very interesting about um, how it's kind of moving. I think it was coordinated reset. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. how currently deep brain stimulation in that you put an electrode deep into the brain to a particular target that we, we know is helpful for different diseases, and then you just um, apply an electrical current mm -hmm. that, that is a continuous high frequency sort of stream of electrical pulses and um, we've kind of kept at that because it seems to work yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. and if it's worked don't, don't break it um, but um, you know people are thinking about well could there be other ways to do this more efficiently or effectively or have more mm. longer lasting effects um, and so uh, some labs are now kind of trying to investigate that you know in animal models and with these kinds of optogenetic mm -hmm. tools um, in humans, there is this idea of could you just give like a certain pulses um, of stimulation at particular frequencies mm -hmm. that might provide longer lasting 
improvements of a phenomenon called coordinated reset, but it's certainly not something that's used mm-hmm. clinically mm-hmm. at the moment. But that mm-hmm. kind of idea is interesting yeah. to, to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was an issue to have, you know, it used to be before rechargeable batteries that you would have to change the battery probably once every three to five years. Um, the battery for deep brain stimulation is under mm. the skin of it like a pacemaker. So the patient would have to come in, have a little you know, minor surgery to mm. open that back up, put a new battery in and replace it. So it wasn't a huge deal. It's usually done as an outpatient in one day, but still every three to five years, if, if it gets put in when someone's in their 40s or 50s, mm-hmm. that's a lot of battery changes to have through their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one question as well was, is there a better way of stimulating that would help preserve the battery life? Mm-hmm. It's sort of a little bit redundant now because we have rechargeable batteries mm. for deep brain stimulation, so it's become much less of an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there are other reasons to try and improve mm-hmm. and change the way we do stimulation. And for me, I think that one of some of the interesting ones are the, the symptoms that are not yet treated by the type of stimulation mm. that we give right now. So we know yeah. that it can work pretty well for um, stiffness and slowness of Parkinson's it can some, and it's actually also very good for tremor. Um, so tremor doesn't always respond to medications and so deep brain stimulation can work really well for the tremor. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't work for other symptoms. So there's a lot of psychiatric symptoms in Parkinson's disease mm-hmm. that don't get treated by deep brain stimulation um, and um, people um, can have postural problems, balance problems that, that mm-hmm, doesn't mm-hmm. get treated by deep brain stimulation. So are there other types mm-hmm. of circuits that you could target yeah. mm-hmm. in different ways um, for those symptoms? Mm-hmm. An open mm-hmm. question. Yeah, it's <laughs> very interesting. So it seems like you knew you wanted to do something in the, in the neuroscience field pretty early on. Would you say um, in London, like most people have to decide on what area they want to focus mm. on in undergrad? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I suppose it depends a little bit whether you're talking medicine or not medicine. Mm-hmm. But like in, so in medicine, um, like there is like there isn't there is a little bit of an, a combined MD PhD program. It's not sort of super wide. There's not that many universities mm-hmm. that offer it. It's a slightly more common path in England is to do medical school as your undergraduate degree and then during the equivalent of residency, you do your PhD, mm-hmm. which is kind of what I did, but I made it different by coming to the <laughs> States. But that, that was sort of the more traditional path. Um, but the PhD would be fairly short. Mm-hmm. But there's, there is an advantage to doing it that way over, you know, more, you know American-style combined MD-PhD mm-hmm. because you've done a lot of clinical work by yeah. that point. So you know hopefully what clinical specialty you're going to go into Mm -hmm. and then you can do a PhD that is you know in that field Mm -hmm. um I think it does tend to lead clinicians to do slightly more clinical research Mm -hmm. rather than basic science but for me you know I decided I wanted to do neurology and so I knew I wanted to do more of a neuroscience PhD rather than you know uh frog muscle PhD mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean that could have worked too but um, you know or like a cardiac PhD mm-hmm. or something like that so it, you know I did have um, you know all that time of medical school six years of medical school plus three or four years of mm-hmm. postgraduate medical training to decide what to do my mm-hmm. PhD in mm-hmm. um, I think in England if you're not doing medicine but you want to do the PhD path 
you have a traditional undergraduate degree, which is like three or four years, and then you choose your PhD. Mm. Um, oh. so, yeah, so it's pretty different from Yeah, it's United really States. different mm. in the States. Mm. I think what I do love the idea in the States that you can um, spend time in your undergraduate degree deciding. Oh, yeah, because yeah, that's the other thing is from high school, it, you, know, you have to decide medical you have to do decide if you want mm-hmm. to do medical school or not if you're not going to do medical yeah. school you still have to decide a subject so you can't just mm-hmm. choose anything you have to say i want to do chemistry or mm-hmm. i want to do biology or yeah. history or english like you have to decide that in high school yeah you can't just kind of figure it out once you get mm-hmm. there and i guess less time to explore in undergrad too um, yeah there's no time to yeah explore, pretty much i mean i think you know, people change their mind a little bit and, mm-hmm. and and there are some courses i think that do what they call natural sciences Mm -hmm. so you know you can choose a little bit within that if you want Mm -hmm. you can start off broad and then narrow down to chemistry or physics or something but um but you still you know you still have to choose science Mm -hmm. over Mm -hmm. you know literature or something like that and you can't really it's hard to study both if you want to i don't think it i don't think you can Mm. yeah there's no, I mean, there's some, there's some combined programs, whatever, you know, there's fairly few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, like, um, I think Oxford has like a phys, uh, philosophy and physiology mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, philosophy, physiology, and sociology. I can't remember <laughs> the exact one, but there are some, but they're, they're, they're not very common. Mm-hmm. And the PhD yeah. is much shorter, mm-hmm. um, three years maximum four years mm-hmm. again it's got its pros and cons I think I, I really like the US PhD system especially because it gives you some of the time to rotate early mm-hmm. on decide on your lab and, and I do think it's really hard to do like really meaty research that requires setting up new techniques and mm-hmm. things in less than four years yeah um but but equally, I feel like there is a tendency for PhDs to kind of drift on and yeah. on. It's hard to stop because once you know, once it's going, then you're on a roll, <laughs> and I'm like, why not continue yeah. if there's no time pressure to finish? So I feel like they can go on mm. for a really long time when maybe people should be transitioning mm. to postdocs and other mm. things. To kind of wrap things up. I was wondering if you could maybe give some insight on things you would want to tell yourself. Maybe yeah. give your college self, yourself, yeah. like in high school, anything. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, well, a few like practical things. I would say learn how to code <laughs> really early uh, and code in as many different languages as I can. and. Um, perhaps do as much math as I can. I felt like it was something that I kept up as long as I could, but I feel like if I could learn more about signal processing or you know the kind of math that underlies some of the analyses that we would want to do really early on, it would all come much more naturally. Um, just in terms of general life stuff, I think... Um, just to enjoy the journey <laughs> and you know I in the end I never I never rushed through anything I've spent about as much time as I possibly can in in um, education and not actually getting a final job but I think just to enjoy that process and not feel anxious about trying mm-hmm. to get to a final 
final point, but sort of enjoy what I'm learning at each stage mm -hmm. and be open to the new opportunities that come. I did a lot of stressing about like, studying and revising for exams and you know, lock myself in a room for many hours trying to get my things learned for exams and I think trying the things that you I don't remember all those hours I but the things I do remember are the trips I made the mm -hmm. holidays I had with friends sport things that I did so you know really trying to emphasize that those are the memories that stay with you and you know a few extra hours studying here or there is probably not making a huge difference but mm -hmm. if, if you have a a choice to go and do something really memorable with someone mm -hmm. choose that yeah. <laughs> even in college I feel the same like obviously studying is super important but when I look back I don't remember that yes. I remember all the other all things, the other things exactly. yeah yeah so it's finding the right balance mm -hmm. yeah yeah thank you so much for the advice and for <laughs> agreeing you. to do this thank the first episode me. I've never <laughs> never spoken on a podcast so yeah. this is a new and memorable <laughs> for both of us yeah <laughs>so that concludes the first episode of bridging synopsis i just want to thank emily again for agreeing to be the first person featured on this podcast and for talking a lot about how she tackles bridging the md and phd roots as well as her life back in london with her life now here in the united states and i want to thank you for listening and i hope you enjoyed this episode